Welcome to the Compliance Plus Ethics Equals Integrity podcast, featuring Barry Dunn Healthcare Practice Group professionals and expert guests discussing their insights into contemporary as well as perennial healthcare regulatory, revenue integrity, general compliance, and risk management topics. I'm Regina Alexander, Director of Independent Review Organization Services. I'm joined for this episode by Barry Dunn Healthcare Practice Senior Consultant, Marcus Wilson. In this episode, we're going to discuss the compliance and revenue integrity risks and opportunities for healthcare organizations with programs that are either partially or fully funded by government grants. Before we get into our discussion, a quick disclaimer. The content we discuss in this podcast is based on our professional experience advising healthcare providers, facilities, and other organizations engaging Barry Dunn for independent review organization, revenue integrity, government program compliance, and credentialing support services. While we may reference specific government programs, Medicare and Medicaid policies, and regulatory guidance, we do not speak for CMS, the HHS OCR, the HHS OIG, DOJ, or any other government agency or contractor, nor do we have the authority to do so. Nothing in this podcast should be considered legal advice. Anyone seeking legal advice on the subjects we discuss should consult their own attorney. And with that out of the way, I'd like to welcome Marcus to the podcast. Marcus, would you mind telling our listeners a little bit about your background? Certainly. It's great to be here with you today. Uh, So my career in the healthcare and then nonprofit space as well has some twists and turns. I, I started as a financial analyst at an academic medical center here in New England after transitioning into the healthcare industry after getting my master's. I worked my way into the world of grants and contracts, supported by my interest in federal regulations and the non-clinical revenue streams. I was fascinated to navigate through waters where it seemed no one was the expert and no one really had time or the patience to figure things out. Uh, So we actually stood up our own grant office in finance on the hospital side. That would be as opposed to the medical school, where usually the grant funding would go, and in that case was going at the time. And we realized that so much grant funding was tipping toward the clinical setting and less so about research. For example, you could say less NIH and more CDC and CMS. Well, Marcus, sounds like I picked the perfect guest for an episode on grant compliance. So typically, wherever there is complexity, I always like to say there is risk, whether from a federal agency like HHS HRSA, NIH, as you said, or CDC, a state Medicaid program, foundation, or private source, grants, as I understand it, typically come with very specific requirements. And from since this is a compliance podcast, I'm going to guess grant compliance gaps also often go unnoticed. And I've learned from talking to you before this podcast that grant revenue has become a significant source of funding in all of healthcare, and especially, obviously, academic medical centers, federally qualified health centers, community hospitals, behavioral health services organizations, and I'm sure many more I don't have time to mention. So, Marcus, like many healthcare compliance professionals that consider themselves generalists, I have my areas of deep expertise. For me, it's HIPAA, 
Medicare and you know kickback statute slash Stark, and then obviously a decent general knowledge of other domains. And that enables me to oversee or assess program risks, but I'm going to concede that grant compliance, despite my experience in prior uh, leadership roles and compliance adjacent roles like health information management in academic medical centers and health systems, grants are a domain I have less experience with. Sure. And, and grants are pretty specific. So that makes a lot of sense. And like you, you know, there are areas I'm pretty comfortable with and feel like I have an expertise. And then there's areas where I know just enough to be dangerous. You know, grant compliance itself actually has a lot of breadth. And admittedly, I do not feel like I'm an expert in all the aspects. So thankfully, you know, here at Barry Dunn, we have a few other grant experts I've had the privilege of working alongside both in the nonprofit space and in the government consulting groups. So far in my time here, it's been very exciting to experience the potential that we have as an organization. I can tell you that when I was working on setting up the grant office and establishing a proprietary clinical FT reporting process and system, I would have loved to have more experts at the table. Well, that's great to hear. Healthcare is definitely a team sport. It sounds like uh, in other domains, uh, government consulting and the like, that's also the case. Having more experts at the table, Marcus, is never a bad thing in my experience. So for our listeners, can you provide a brief overview of the types of grants compliance professionals should know about? Yeah, absolutely. There are some really specific areas of compliance to be aware of. And I'd separate them into a few different categories that'll make it simple for us as we walk through this. The first would be your, your classic and, and most standard and that apply at some level to really all grant funding, because it's the simple fact that grant monies are restricted. So any funder from the federal government to your local community organization like the Lions Club or the VFW will likely require that if you're awarded a grant from them, the monies are restricted. You can only use them for the purpose laid out in the award and proposal. And usually that compliance includes following the requested reporting requirements of that funder as well. You know, though this category may sound obvious, it's actually pretty far-reaching because it even potentially provides guidance on subrecipients, so where the money goes after you after the initial awardee receives it, or rules about who can do the work, what type of organization, how you choose a vendor, all sorts of categories. Wait, the kind of organization, how you choose a vendor. That sounds like some of the same requirements I deal with on the hospital side to help our clients avoid kickback statute risk and the like. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They, they really are the same ideas. I mean, basically, it's simple, right? No favoritism and providing for supporting government preferred organizations like those owned by women, people of color, or veterans. So if you're spending federal monies especially, you need to prove that you choose the vendor based on verifiable best practices, assuring that the awarded money doesn't end up in the bucket of fraud, waste, and abuse. And that's a pretty big bucket, and it can be pretty easy to land in there inadvertently. So, okay, but that is just the first category, right? What's next? Yeah. So the second area, which is also applicable to all funding but only if you have a large amount of federal funding. It's actually $750,000 annually to be exact. It's known as single audit. 
And I apologize that this next section may sound a little wooden, but I'm actually going to read a summary from my good friend and colleague in our not-for-profit team, Katie Belukas. She's more of an expert in this space, so I'm actually reading her summary of the single audit. The Federal Single Audit Act is a requirement for entities to undergo an independent financial and compliance audit when the entity has expended over $750,000 in federal awards. These audits are conducted following guidance issued through the Governmental Auditing Standards and the United States Office of Management and Budget's Uniform Guidance. The main focus of the compliance audit is to assess the entity's compliance with the requirements set forth by the federal agency that administered the grant funds that includes, but is not limited to, determining if the funds were utilized for allowable costs and activities and expended within the proper grant period, and that the reporting and performance objectives were met. Well, based on what you just said, and I know you were quoting one of our colleagues, it sounds like internal resources within an organization that receives grants are essential for grant management and, of course, ensuring compliance. Even more so, it sounds like, with the larger grants. Yeah, absolutely. And I I hate to use the somewhat tired phrase at this stage, but it does take a village. It it really does. Grant management isn't something an organization should do on the side, assigning grant accounting to someone who already has a full-time role. And unfortunately, this is common, but it's also unfortunate because it leads to both compliance concerns as well as just plain old poor funding management. So speaking of funding, the third type of compliance is very focused on a component of the grant world that really has a life of its own. It's the indirect rate. Okay, Marcus, when you mentioned indirect rate in our preparation for this podcast, and even though I hold a fancy MBA, I confess I visited the Google machine. The clearest definition I found stated, quote, an indirect cost rate represents the ratio between the total indirect costs and benefiting direct costs after excluding and or reclassifying unallowable costs and extraordinary or distorting expenditures. That just sounds like a compliance risk area and the sausage making of unallowable costs is really complicated. Yeah, and the accounting term for indirect costs relates very closely to the way that the federal government defines it, Uh, but it's a very deep well. And there's just an awful lot to think about with the indirect rate. You know, on the one hand, you could say it's pretty simple. I mean, a lot of the foundation funders and some federal funders will offer you a 5% or 10% indirect rate without any need to make a calculation. And that's because they know that if you take time to do the math, you'll come up with a number much higher than 5 or 10%. When it comes to federal grants and healthcare delivery organizations, it gets into how you measure your cost as an organization. At the hospital, of course, this is based on the Medicare cost report. And that's where we would do the fancy math to derive the indirect rate. But believe me, it was neither simple nor straightforward. Lots of conversations and actually making internal decisions about how to manage it, uh, it, just in order to move forward. It actually hurts my head just to remember all of that. So from there, I'll move on to the last area of compliance, which is the one I'm actually most passionate about and can afford to get a little more detailed. It's actually probably the most minimized or at the very least misapplied. 
And that's partially because the regulatory attention is not as strong. And that is what those of us who are more intimately involved in grant management call time and effort. Time and effort. Okay. I don't want to guess here, so I'm guessing you're going to explain time and effort. What exactly does that mean regarding grants? Well, yeah, in, in one way, it, it is exactly what it sounds like. The idea is that much of granted dollars from the federal government gets spent in the form of staff time. The challenge is to match time to effort, but that isn't as unclear as it sounds. You see, the, the standard way of measuring staff time is usually in a payroll system of some sort. But the payroll system doesn't tell me how you spent your time. Okay, now I'm getting a little confused, and I hope you'll clarify. So a payroll system can't do that, like with allocations? Yeah, it absolutely can do the allocations. But here's where the gap comes in. Putting allocations into payroll, showing how an employee should spend their time, is really no guarantee that that's actually how they're spending their time. Okay. All right. Now that makes a lot of sense, but it should be, right? Yeah, exactly. But how does the organization typically go about assuring that? Now, I don't want to speak for everyone, but let's just say I happen to know that there's a place or two or three or maybe 10,000 that basically put allocations into payroll and then, unfortunately, often well after the fact or more than once, send that allocation to the employee to sign off on without really any option to disagree or modify. We all know that is not compliance. But in the organization's defense, there really haven't been very good alternatives to that kind of woeful and frustrating process, at least not that have been widely shared or understood. Okay. So is this the part where someone with your expertise comes in? Yes, this is where I get involved. This is the work I really enjoy. It's really a simple setup that requires very little payroll, you know, redo per se, and, and simple attestation process in Excel to maybe a very incredibly complex model with triggered attestations in PDF format and a database that manages the overall FTE of principal investigators and also might even drive the available clinical provider time. It can all be done. We just need to know what the goal is. Well, as we know in the compliance world, it is often the case that rules are not followed because there is no perceived risk. So how does this factor come into play in the grant world? Well, some people involved in grant management do not have any experience or even knowledge of violations meeting with any consequences. That said, organization inter interest in grant compliance has more implications than just preventing front page news. What I find in the conversations with organizations, both large and small, is that loose time and effort management actually costs the organization. It's inefficient and potentially wasteful, including even salary dollars, and it results in further issues, especially when it comes time to close out the grant year. For example, what I mean is extra time spent by the staff, by project coordinators and managers and the accountants in sorting things out because they didn't get them right the first time. This is what makes working in this space so rewarding because like so much of compliance, it's about doing something better, 
not just being compliant, but setting organizations up to better meet their goals and fulfill their mission. Well, Marcus, compliance, even as a compliance professional, to me, always feels like the minimum. So I'm glad you made that point. Um, But could you further elaborate and help us out here? Because the time and effort seems simple, but an example would be helpful. Sure. Uh, Uniform guidance gives minimum requirements for grant management FTEs, and quite frankly, the bar is pretty low. At a minimum, an organization must have attestation from employees at least once a quarter. But think about that. I mean, let me ask you, Regina, how did you spend your week 10 weeks ago? (laughs) Can you split out your time to show me what efforts you spent your time on? Well, now that you mention it, Marcus, since I am a consultant and we keep our time in a system... If you let me look it up, I can tell you. Yeah, right. Of course. But if you couldn't look it up because there was no such system, then you, me, or any busy physician or principal investigator could not possibly accurately report on their effort. That makes sense, especially with my experience regarding physicians and everything that they have to do in a day. So then what are organizations supposed to do? Well, they need to do something. They need to seek a solution, a process and a method that will both pass audit muster as well as help the organization properly manage their resources. Almost every organization manages their productivity and finances on a regular basis, monthly, let's say, right? So the same standard should apply to grant time and effort management. It's much more reasonable to ask you how you spent your effort this month asking you to make a reasonable estimate of your time allocations to the different efforts you worked on. That makes sense. I often advise clients that doing nothing about a risk is actually a business decision. So it sounds like the same idea applies to grants and time and effort management. We could probably chat, Marcus, for a few hours and still only scratch the surface of this topic. As we wrap up today's discussion, however, For the healthcare compliance professionals listening who are considering adding some type of grant risk assessment or program review to their annual compliance work plans, what are the two or three most important things you think they should consider? Yeah, absolutely. A a great thing to provide for our listeners, some takeaways. So here are a few thoughts. First, what grant-focused infrastructure does your client have? If they are subject to a single audit, I would be very concerned if there was no dedicated administrative grant staff. And by that, I mean not the programmatic people actually working on the grant, but people outside the grant that are covered by that indirect rate. There should be dedicated people working on those grants to make sure that they have it all managed. Second, ask about time and effort and find out how they're handling it. If the process has any long after the fact attestations or payroll generated reporting, it is unlikely to be truly following the spirit of uniform guidance. Third, the grant world is a whole ball game unto itself. Barry Dunn has some great resources internally for us to up our grant game and come to the table with some great help to offer our clients regarding grants. Thanks, Marcus. Those are actually some really great tips. We've reached the conclusion of our discussion. So on behalf of myself and Marcus, we'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Barry Dunn's Healthcare Insights, Compliance plus Ethics equals Integrity podcast. We welcome listener questions and feedback about the ideas we discussed in this episode. 
as well as suggestions for topics we should consider developing for future episodes. Music